When we read about God's name or the Lord saying, my name, what does it mean? Is it a real name? An actual name? Plenty of names given to the Lord, particularly in the early books of the Old Testament. Is it the name that God announced to Moses at the burning bush? I am that I am, or possibly I will be whom I will be, or possibly even I am the one who is. It seems to be that it's not any particular name that is in mind here. Rather, it's what the word name carries by association, as it were. It stands for honor, renown, reputation. As, for instance, we might say about a celebrity who is growing in importance, maybe a budding actor or a singer or even a footballer, he or she is making quite a name for themselves, we say. A name of importance, a name to be noted for what they are doing and who they are. So what were God's people doing that led to the nations profaning his name, which is the phrase that keeps on coming up, damaging his reputation? And the people, according to Ezekiel, were damaging the Lord's reputation in two particular ways. Firstly, through idolatry. The section from chapter 20 that I read a little earlier Ezekiel writes of how they worshipped idols in Egypt 700 years before Ezekiel's time. And when they left Egypt, they continued it in the desert. We remember the famous story of the golden calf, which they sang and danced around. How Moses' own brother Aaron said, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. Many of the kings that followed King David did much the same. The gods could be a bit different, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of Tyre and Sidon to the north. Worst of all was the son of good king Hezekiah, the bad king Manasseh, about whom we read quite a bit, both in the second book of Kings and the second book of Chronicles. Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He took the image that he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name. So there was idolatry there. Also, there was the shedding of blood. Manasseh, in particular, was a bloodthirsty monarch. And some particularly vivid writing from the historian at this point. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And listen to this for 
vivid writing, vivid recording of what the Lord said. Therefore, this is what the Lord said, the God of Israel. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. How many times at the kitchen sink have you and I done that? You take a dish, you wipe it like this, and you put it on the draining board to dry out. And the Lord says, that's what I'm going to do to Jerusalem. That's the judgment on King Manasseh who filled Jerusalem in blood. So was the, and it was the impurity brought by the blood. And so the judgment came about during Ezekiel's time, with Ezekiel being carried off to Jerusalem, to, from Jerusalem to Babylon. I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations. But here comes the difficult point to talk about. All these judgments that the Lord passed on Israel had a knock-on effect for the other nations said, verse 20, these are the Lord's people, but they had to leave his land. Now this sounds rather as if the Lord is saying, I was worried about what the neighbors would say. And you get that through back in chapter 20 again. I, I decided that I would do this, but I thought of what the Egyptians would say or of what the, of what the other nations would say, and therefore I changed my mind. At least that's the surface reading of it. Uh, in fact, when uh, Moses had to plead with the Lord on one occasion, the Lord said, I am going to destroy the whole people and I'm going to start off with a fresh lot. And Moses said, oh, no, 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 think of what the Egyptians will say. But there's more to it than that. You see, the Lord had made a promise, a covenant, to give his people a land to live in. And yet here they are, in Babylon, which is the wrong place. So their very presence here in Babylon must mean, people said, well, either the Lord has broken his promise, his covenant, or else the Lord was not strong enough to stand up against the might of Nebuchadnezzar's army. Either way, just the very presence of all these Jews in Babylon brings disgrace upon the reputation of the Lord. In Ezekiel's words, it profanes the name of the Lord. Sometimes the, the Jews, the Israelites, had a very pathetic time in Babylon. Just a little scene that comes to us at the beginning of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. For there our captors asked us for a song. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, they said. Just as if the Jews were no more than some sort of visiting music group at a national Eisteddfod, or maybe at WOMAD, the World Music Festival, which was held down south just a few weeks ago. One could almost see the scene. The captors are having a feast together, and there they are drinking from their cups, and they start banging their cups on their benches, and the cry goes up, oh, send for some of the Jews, we'll have one of their nice songs, a particular Jewish idiom that they use. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? 
in such ways was the name of the Lord profaned and humiliated in the eyes of those who looked on the captors. And remember, there were other captive nations in Jerusalem as well who would have known very well what was going on. So the Lord then says what he's going to do about it. But first of all, verses 22 and 23, he gives his reasons. Yes, O house of Israel, I will act, but not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have dragged in the dirt before the nations. I will show myself holy before them, and this is how I will do it. I will do it through you, but you will have no part in it, for I will do it all. This is the point that Bill Tuman made very strongly a fortnight ago when he introduced Ezekiel to us. Israel does not have to do anything. And if you read down these verses here, you find the, the, the words, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I think I counted it up in this section. The phrase, I will, comes about 15 times. The Lord says, I am going to do it all. You are not going to do it anything. I will show myself holy before them. And the nations will see it all. They think of you as a captive people and of me as a pathetic local deity who doesn't keep his promises or maybe can't. And they will be made to think again. I will gather you, verse 23 onwards, and bring you back into your own land. The prophet Isaiah tells us how this is in fact going to happen. It's going to happen and it happens many years later, roughly 50 years later or thereabouts. It happens through Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians, whom in Isaiah the Lord calls my servant, although Cyrus never acknowledged the Lord. Babylon was defended by massive walls. It seemed to be nobody could figure out a way of capturing the city of Babylon. But there was a weak point. The river Euphrates runs through the city of Babylon from the north side to the south. And of course it runs under the, uh, under the ramparts and under the city walls. So what does Cyrus do? It's very simple in principle. He diverts the river. It must have taken months of work. He diverts the river Euphrates and his soldiers march in under the walls along the dry riverbed. And so the city of Babylon falls. And the policy of Cyrus is that the, all the captive peoples are allowed to return to their homes, to rebuild their temples in their homelands, and, this is the strange thing, to pray to their gods for Cyrus's long reign in prosperity. Had I be, had a projector here, I would have shown you an object in the British Museum called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is made out of clay and is about so long, which is covered with tiny, tiny writing, and this tells us all about how Cyrus captured Babylon in the year 539. And Cyrus wasn't particularly interested in the God of the Jews as such. What he wanted was for his own reign to be secure and therefore would all the captive peoples please go back to their own lands and to their own gods and build their own temples and pray to their own gods for Cyrus's long and peaceful reign, please. That was his policy. But Isaiah, Isaiah says, Cyrus my servant. And so it happened. And 
in the book of Ezra, back in the historical books, the last of the historical books, we read of how it happened and how it came about. But it's not just the return of the people that is the Lord's concern here. It's what is to happen to them when they get back into their own land because they need to be changed in a new way as God's people. Otherwise, all the old problems will just return. Sacrifices to gods of the high places, Asherah poles popping up like mushrooms everywhere. A change of heart is needed. And so we read verse 26, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you my spirit and will move you so that you will live the way I want you to live. That is what he's saying. And the land will prosper and the towns will be rebuilt and people will say, look at that. It's just like the Garden of Eden was. And the nations, those that are still surviving, that's an interesting point. Nations are going to be changing. The nations that still survive will know and see what I have done and will no longer hold my name in contempt. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Did it work? When the exiled returned to Israel, were things really different? Well, yes, in, certainly in one way they were. It really does seem that when the exiles returned to their own land, idolatry disappeared from among them. There were no more sacrifices on the hilltops. There were no more Asherah poles going up with sacrifices to fertility gods and goddesses. Now, things weren't perfect. There were still a lot of things that were wrong. All you have to do is to read the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, to find a whole bunch of things that were wrong. But idolatry had gone. And the nation's religious life really was different from what it was before the exile. But in all these things and considerations of what Ezekiel means for the people then, we have to ask what it was, what it is for our own time. One of the books I read about Ezekiel said in its introduction, don't look for timeless truths in the prophets. Rather first look at what the prophet's message meant for his own time about God's nature and God's purposes and what he did back then. And then look at our own times. And so therefore we are faced with this problem. What can we discern about the will and the intentions of God for our situations in the light of Ezekiel's situation, which was two and a half thousand years ago? And I was helped by what some people have said and shown us in the past weeks. Three weeks ago, Cater was talking to us about uh, the book of Revelation, the message to the church in Laodicea. And, he showed, uh, and she showed us uh, how Bible teaching and Bible passages can be thought of in two ways. You can sometimes have things presented in a negative light and sometimes presented in a positive light. And had I had the projector, I would have hoiked Cater's slide out of the file and shown it to you because she had a, a little 
picture of a pair of scissors and in one, one half of the pair of scissors is black on a white background and the other half of the pair of scissors is white on a black background but it's still just one pair of scissors showing us the same object. And there's something that we can, that's an interesting idea in helping to understand the message to the church in the Odyssea. We can see things and find things presented to us in God's word in two different ways, in different ways. Ezekiel here is the negative way. And perhaps knowing Ezekiel, we would say, well, there's no surprise in that. You, God's people, he says to them, have lived unworthy lives that have brought shame on God's name, which is then profaned by those who look on the other nations. Unworthy lives bringing shame on God's name. But Andrew's talk last Sunday morning, when he was talking about Colossians chapter 1 to us, he was talking about living a life worthy of the Lord. And so the message that comes to us from there is this. You, God's people, I pray that you may live worthy lives that please God. And so we, what we've got is we've got a negative image from Ezekiel and a positive image from Colossians talking about the same thing. Ezekiel says, shame on you for your unworthy lives, bringing contempt from those who see you. And Paul says, live worthy lives so that those who oppose you may themselves be ashamed for they have nothing bad to say about you. Ezekiel is looking back in the past and is giving the negative view of what has happened in the past. Paul is looking into the future, looking at the life of a young church and young Christians in this young church and how is this church going to develop and grow? The negative image, you have lived unworthy lives in the past. The positive image, aim to live worthy lives. Because then, and I've hoiked in in fact, on, on the hymn sheet here, what I did was I printed off a slide that I would have had up to show you if I could. It's a sort of nutshell. Ezekiel looks backwards and gives the negative image. You've all lived unworthy lives, and I've got the verse references there. Your critics are right, and shame falls on you and on the Lord. Paul looks forwards and gives the positive image. Aim in the future to live worthy lives, Colossians. Then I've hoiked in a reference from the book of Titus. And then your critics will be wrong and shame falls on them. That's the verse where Paul says in Titus that those who criticize you will be ashamed because they will find nothing bad to say against you. In other words, the absolute opposite of what Ezekiel is talking about. So the challenge, the modern challenge for us that comes out of Ezekiel is, can we see the positive challenge that we have, that all Christians have? Christians had it in Paul's time 2,000 years later. Christians have it today. I thought about the church in Scotland today the church in Scotland today is largely ignored, but where it is noticed, it's often criticised and sometimes even despised. 
Let me give you three little vignettes very quickly. Two years ago, our son Philip led a scripture union mission in the island of Mull, among the smaller churches towards the north of Mull. And they had evening events for teenagers, and one evening they found a group of teenagers sitting outside the church and refusing to go in. I presume this was a church hall. The teenagers were outside, they refused to go in. One of them said, churches are evil. And it was only when one brave soul had been persuaded to poke his head round the door and see that uh, all that was inside was a few young people and food, that it was possible to persuade them to go in. About a few years ago, I was visiting my doctor in the doctor's surgery. And suddenly, completely out of the blue, my doctor spoke about church elders in ways which I would not dare to repeat to you here. Out of the blue. And I thought, you've obviously had some bad experience in the past. I heard a group of friends talking about disputes and quarrels in churches, and the general view was that if you really want to see nasty behavior, join a church, because the backbiting that goes on there has a particular quality all its own. And in such ways, the Lord's name is profaned in our land at this time. Is the judgment of God active among the churches of Scotland? Is this why many churches in our land are the way they are at the present time? We mustn't try to judge, judge, we mustn't try to dodge criticism ourselves. And I found back in the history of St. Andrew's Baptist Church a, a rather curious, interesting reference For 150th, which was in 1991, Ian Doherty, our local historian, wrote for us a book, The History of St. Andrew's Baptist Church, over 150 years, because we were founded in 1841, 1991 was our 150th. And he found a very curious thing going through the records. Our records start in 1841. But from 1871 to 1886, there are no extant records, no books, nothing. And then in 1886, the records start up again. And in the minutes of a meeting of 1886, Ian found this comment, that at that time in 1886, the minister and deacons of this church decided that they would destroy the minute book for the 15 years, 1871 to 1886. And nobody knows why. One can guess. One can speculate. There were, resig there were resignations. There were differences. But nevertheless, something or some things went wrong during those 15 years that the people who came after didn't felt so ashamed, perhaps. They didn't want people like us to know about it, so they destroyed all the records. They took good care 
that we would never find out what has happened. As we come to a close now, is there a way back? No matter how far the people of God sink, there is always a way back to God. The people of the exile were returned and Ezekiel wrote of a new soft heart and a new spirit. The church in Laodicea, of which Cater wrote and spoke to us three weeks ago, the problem there was the idolatry of materialism, which they were thoroughly immersed in. And yet, there is this promise that the church in Laodicea will hear a knock at the door and someone is waiting to come in and share fellowship with them. And St. Andrew's Baptist Church, just four years after this strange period in 1890, a new minister was appointed. And then in the decade that followed, there were something like 80 baptisms in the last decade of the 19th century. Church membership more than doubled. And they were running out of room, so they decided that they would want to build a larger building. So an architect provided them with free architectural plans, just provided that his firm was chosen to do the building. And a new building was built, and it was opened in 1902, and it was this place. That's how the Lord responds. The Lord is gracious.